Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I speak with Aditi Juneja of Protect Democracy, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to fighting efforts to undermine our right to free, fair, and fully informed self-government. In other words, while you spent the last four years calling your senator and phone banking, the superheroes of Protect Democracy have been doing nothing less than preventing our country from sliding into authoritarianism. Aditi and I talk about the work the group did to protect the guardrails of democracy, what accountability should look like, and what changes we need in our government going forward to win back the faith of its citizens. I can't think of a better way to kick off season two than with this look back at the remarkable work done over the last four years to protect our democracy and to look ahead at what we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. And now here's my conversation with Aditi Juneja. Aditi Juneja, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with just first you giving me the quick big picture on what Protect Democracy is. Who started it? When did they start it? Why did they start it? Yeah, so Protect Democracy was launched in February of 2017, but there were conversations happening immediately after the election. And our co-founders were Ian Basson and Justin Florence, along with Emily Loeb, who is on our board of directors, with the idea that Donald Trump posed a unique and existential threat to American democracy, that the concerns about Donald Trump that came up through the election were not just around we're not just around policy issues and policy debates, but really kind of core facets of democracy, respecting checks and balances, believing that every person in the United States is a part of this polity and has rights within that democracy. And as they began doing additional research, what they discovered was that this is a trend throughout the world, that this is not the decline of liberal democracy is not one that is unique to the United States, but really situated in a global context where we're seeing the rise of authoritarian populist leaders. And it's different from moments in history where we've seen that before, because often these leaders are being democratically elected. It's not that they're seizing power through coups or other types of power grabs. And so they brought a group of people together. It started with a lot of former government people with the idea that they would be best situated to understand where Donald Trump might use the lovers of government to try to to erode democracy. And what became quickly obvious to us and everyone else is that this was not happening in secret behind closed doors. It was happening wide open in the public. And so The organization has grown over the last three or four years to include people from all areas of the advocacy ecosystem, policy advocates, communicators, people who can really bring an integrated advocacy approach to this work. So, I mean, with hindsight, we can all see that Trump's authoritarian tendencies were in plain view from the beginning, but many of us were hoping at the very beginning that it was bluster or he was too stupid or too inept to pull anything off or cause lasting damage. But you all protect democracy jumped into action right away. I mean, how did everyone know so early? I mean, I know you said they did know early, but what, how did they figure that out so quickly? 
So we didn't know, right? We all sort of hoped we were wrong. We were formed in thinking that we are like the worst case scenario group. Maybe everyone will think we're crazy and we'll destroy our careers. That'll be a best outcome for the nation. Recently, we were told by an external partner that we're the most paranoid motherfuckers in American politics. (laughs) And so I think it's like a badge we wear proudly. We want t-shirts made, right? That like for us, we're the people who are like, oh, this can be really bad. And if we're wrong, excellent. And if we're not, we're prepared. So we didn't know. We feared and went towards that fear instead of trying to ignore it. That's really interesting. I mean, they just put all their chips on the table hoping they were wrong. And in fact, thank God you guys have been there. I mean, I'm extremely excited for everyone to learn about what you're doing because I think some people, I mean, you still fly under the radar a little bit. I don't think people realize how much you're doing. Okay. Let's talk about the last four years. We have seen a torrent of undemocratic activity culminating, of course, with the recent storming of the Capitol and the second impeachment of Trump, which as we're recording this just happened this week. And of course, we're going to discuss that. But before we do so, I just want to walk through some of the crises along the way that you all have responded to and what you've been doing to protect us. It really makes me emotional, actually, just to think about how it felt, because I think that just an important thing for your listeners to know is that even for those of us who are working on it, it felt very scary the whole way through. Like we didn't know what was going to happen. And when you look back through history, this is recent history, but when you look back through even moments in history, study World War II, you know how the Holocaust ended. But in that moment, in that time, people didn't know what was going to happen. And I'm just saying it here for history and posterity. Like we did not know what was going to happen. And so for over the last four years, some of the, I'll share the key things that I worked on because they're just more top of mind. When I joined the organization, the first project I was assigned to was a project around pardons and Joseph Arpaio's pardon. Joseph Arpaio is a sheriff in Arizona, and he was pardoned for contempt of court after being held in contempt of court because he continually violated people's constitutional rights after a court ordered him not to. And so that was kind of a real line crossing of the use of the pardon power and kind of signaling of things to come. We also worked on, for example, the emergency declaration at the border. People have now forgotten because it was two years ago, but there was an emergency declaration order to build a border wall. And that never happened because organizations, including ours, filed lawsuits to say that it was an executive power grab, that you couldn't use executive authority to do that. And we were the one organization that filed in Texas. We filed in the Fifth Circuit. And our co-counsel on that case was Stu Gerson, who worked in the Department of Justice under George Bush. So we worked really closely with Republicans on that case. We also did a lot of work supporting the grassroots efforts, trying to protect the Mueller investigation. And then Thinking on the other end of it, once the Mueller investigation came to light and there was a reveal what happened next and the lead up to impeachment that happened in the aftermath of that, we tried to support all of those efforts. We also, that this is all kind of work that we were doing rapid response in real time in 2018 in the election. We filed lawsuits in Georgia and Florida where secretaries of states were trying to influence the outcome of the election using their power to try to do that. But we were also thinking longer term this whole way through. So Soren Dayton on our team 
who's a Republican, really raised the idea of what happens the day after Donald Trump leaves office. And we were really looking to Watergate as a moment where it created an opportunity for a lot of reforms to reinforce the guardrails of our democracy. So starting years ago, two years ago, we first created this roadmap for renewal, which launched on July 4th, I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019, that kind of laid out the areas of reform we would need. And then we worked hard to draft legislation, coordinate with partners, which resulted earlier last year in the Protecting Our Democracy Act being introduced by Congressman Schiff. And it's great because there's this package of legislative reforms ready to go. And as part of that, we work on HR one as well and HR four, other legislative proposals. But the idea was we wanted it to be the case that when there was a next administration, we could hit the ground running. And for the last year in 2020, we really spent a lot of it thinking about how to protect this election and knowing that authoritarians, when they're on the precipice of losing power, will do anything they can to keep it. And so we convened and staffed the National Task Force on Election Crises that actually just today on January 15th released its report on the 2020 election, things that went well, lessons learned, and recommendations for reform for the future. And that group's effort really was to try to align all the actors in the space, secretaries of state, governors, media, social media, faith leaders, former presidents, military leaders, celebrities, and sort of knowing what this process would be, what would happen, and how to respond. So we were prepared to wait a week for election results. We were prepared for certification fights. We were prepared for state legislators potentially trying to seize power. And so We had thought GSA ascertainment, we had thought through all of those scenarios months in advance and had explainers on how the law worked and were also able to respond in real time to help inform people and the media on how all this stuff is supposed to work. So it sounds like you have a lot of tools in your toolbox. I mean, there's litigation, there's legislation, there's task forces. Anything else I've left out or... I mean, I think as part of all of this is communications, right? Working with the media, talking to the public. And while we did not build out a grassroots army or capability because there are so many other really capable partners, we did try to support them and really work closely in coalition with them. I mean, the last four years, endless attacks on our democracy by Trump and the GOP. It's like sometimes it felt like a game of whack-a-mole, like you're just, you know, never ending. How did you guys decide which issues to take on? Or did you try to take everything on? We definitely didn't try to take (laughs) everything on. I think the number one gating criteria for us always was, are there other people working on it? Like that was always the big thing. So there were lots of lawsuits that we could have brought that we didn't bring because other organizations were all over it. And even the ones we did bring, we really thought about what is our value add. So there were some we brought that others weren't working on, but then there were others like the border wall case that I mentioned that we brought where we thought we had something unique to bring in terms of working with Republicans and the jurisdiction we brought it in. So we definitely didn't try to tackle everything. It was where do we have value add and where are others not working? And the other thing we really tried to do was try to be forward looking. I think our biggest impact was where we could anticipate problems. So the task force on election crises formed in February 2019. There were a lot of actors that got into the space and trying to prevent crises and thwart them in 2020. But we had done a lot of scenario planning. And so as those new efforts emerged, we were able to help inform them. And that really multiplied our reach because we had done some of the early thinking. And it was the same thing on the Protecting Our Democracy Act that 
lots of folks are talking about reform and legislative reform now, but we were able to lay the groundwork early. And so I think that was another strategy we had was not thinking about what's the current fight, but what's going to be the fight in three months, what's going to be the fight in a year. Yeah, that's really valuable. So I'd like to go through a few specifics with you on how we fix the vulnerabilities that Trump has exposed. So first, let's maybe talk about norms for a minute. I mean, much of the damage has been insidious, specifically the undermining of norms. And pre-Trump, I don't think a lot of us were so aware of how heavily our system relied on that, particularly the presidency. And these are like the you know, you talked about the guardrails. I think people refer to norms as like soft guardrails. So how do we make democracy work without norms, which by definition reflect an understanding, often unspoken or shared values among members of society? I mean, they're subtle and nuanced, unlike laws. And some might be easy to codify, like say, you know, requiring an incoming president to release his or her tax returns, but others are, are much more amorphous. So how do we fix those? So I think that you point to like a really important distinction in terms of like looking at the categories of norms and trying to figure out what are they. So as you point out, there are norms that you can codify like tax returns or other types of kind of disclosures. You can formalize certain processes. You can clarify laws like around GSA ascertainment, right? Like no one even knew that was a thing before the transition process got stilted. And you could put in the law, like how do you ascertain that a candidate is the likely and apparent winner? And so there, there are things you can do to clarify laws. On the norms front, where it's harder to codify, like a concession speech, I don't think you could ever kind of say you have to concede, right? Like that is a norm that I've been thinking a lot about. Or pardon power. Yeah, I mean, pardon power, you could think about constitutional amendments, transparency, other things like legally to make it work better. But yeah, there are definitely some amount of that is norms. And I think that there are a couple ways to think about it. One is consequences, that there need to be consequences for violating norms. And a lot of our system, if you look back to all the writing that was done in the 90s after the Mark Rich pardon, which was a very controversial pardon that Bill Clinton issued to someone who was, was a donor to a Hillary Clinton Senate campaign. All of the legal scholars at the time said, we don't really need to like reform clemency writ large or create laws or structures or constitutional amendments around it because people pay a price for bad pardons at the polls. There is a consequence suffered. And so... I think with the 2020 election, there was a consequence to the Republican Party. They lost the presidency, the House, and then in Georgia, they lost the Senate. And I think that is a consequence that should cause them to take a step back and think about what what does this mean for them? And I think even at the state and local level, when we look at officials who aided and abetted in delaying certification or contemplated submitting their own slates of electors, voters can create a consequence for them and say, I don't want an elected official who tries to disenfranchise me. I'm going to vote you out. You could have people who run against them on a platform of saying like, why do you want someone representing you who doesn't want your vote to count? And you can throw them out of office. So I think that sort of wide scale repudiation is very powerful in voters communicating what they want. And then I think there's a third level to this in terms of norms, which is thinking about why are norms eroded in the first place? What is driving that? And I think 
in this case, a lot of it is around power. It's about the changing demographics of this country. It's about the ways that Republicans, based on who their current base is, don't have a way to win elections without being anti-democratic, small d democratic. If the majority of voters vote, if we had mandatory voting in this country, Republicans would not win elections. And so there is something to think about there in terms of how does the Republican Party remake itself so it can win elections and so it's not doing this type of desperate behavior? And how do we think about our democracy and our culture and make shifts so that the voters aren't creating pressure on elected officials to take these anti-democratic power grabs and instead have comfort and feel like they're being representative and that their government is responsive. So I think it's about a deeper rot as well, that the norms sort of end up being a symptom of. Yeah. And some of that is maybe the information bubbles we live in feed into that because, I mean, yes, the voters did repudiate Trump and the Republicans, but just barely. I mean, the Senate win, those races last week, those were amazing and miraculous and in many ways due to the incredible efforts of Stacey Abrams and other grassroots groups getting out the vote on the ground. But that's just barely. Trump, yes, he he lost the popular vote by a lot. But, you know, in the various states, as we know, it came down to tens of thousands of votes. And so in terms of that information bubble, is there anything you guys see that we can do about that? I mean, how do we come together to, I think norms and values require some shared understandings, right? And when, when we have completely different understandings of what's going on, how do you bring us together that way? Yeah. So I think there are two ways to think about the problems in our information ecosystem. One way is to think about it from a supply side of like, you have these platforms and how are they regulated and where are people getting their information and how, you know, the policies of the platforms and their regulation or lack thereof. But I think a secondary way of thinking about it that's actually more important is the demand that people have. So as Twitter started to shut down, certain types of disinformation, people left and went to parlor. As Fox News reported accurate election information, people left and went to OAN and Newsmax. And so I don't think it's enough to think about how our information is spread and trying to be thoughtful about trying to pierce those bubbles, but really thinking about like, why do people hate reality so much that they're willing to live in conspiracy land? That is like a very real question, right? Like what makes you hate your reality so much or find it so terrifying that your preferred option is to live in a realm of lies? And that is something I think we really have to dig into. And there's some research I have I have like theories of a few things that I think are driving this, but I think one of the tasks for Protect Democracy and other similarly situated orgs in the next few years, now that we're not on defense in the same way, is to really have an analysis of that and then figure out how and where we want to tackle it. So, and then there's the another mechanism of keeping our leaders in line, and that's the constitutional system of checks and balances. Yet, how do we protect democracy when one branch stops doing its checking job, like the Senate, for instance, as we've witnessed over the last four years? How do you enforce a check? So you don't, right? Like the whole idea of checks and balances and the whole system of our government, it's designed on the idea 
So one thing is our systems of checks and balances is designed on the premise that we wouldn't have political parties. It wasn't designed with the idea of political parties in mind and unified government in mind, right? And at that time period, they weren't thinking about political parties. And it was really designed that each branch of government would be most interested and most focused on preserving its own power. And so there would be a natural sort of checking that would happen because the Congress wanted to be more powerful than the president who wanted to be more powerful than the judiciary. And those checks would sort of happen. And if you think about our system, it would work if we didn't have parties, if the Senate was really interested in protecting the Senate. But we do have parties. And so we need to sort of update our system to account for that. We need to update our system to think about the lived reality over the last 200 years that we do have parties. And that means that when you have unified government, you don't really have checks. And so we need to update a very thoughtful design of checks and balances to account for the fact that if you have unified government, your checks may go away. And so that might look like thinking about how you create systems or abilities for minority parties in a branch of government to exert more authority or more be able to force a vote on something. For example, a big challenge in the Senate is that if Mitch McConnell doesn't want to put something to a vote, it can't be put to a vote. You could create a procedural mechanism that says if you could get 40 senators to sign on to something, you have to vote on it. Right. The problem is, though, that you need that majority controlled Senate to agree to that, right, to pass it if it's going to be legislation, unless you're talking about some kind of constitutional amendment, which is even a higher bar. That's true. But right now we're about to move to a period of Democratic rule in the Senate. And it's a real opportunity for not just to get things done, but to really think about procedural process reforms, because of the way the Senate is currently constituted, it is more likely that Democrats will not be in power in the Senate again in the near future than the other way around. And so we really have an incentive to think about, even if in the short term, it means that Republicans are able to create some headaches for the Democratic majority in the Senate, we need to be thinking long term about what are systems and change in process and procedures that when the shoe is on the other foot, will make things better for us. So let's talk about what's happening right now. Things took a horrific turn last week with the attack on the Capitol incited by the president. What was the reaction in your office after this happened? I mean, did you all see this coming as the inevitable result of Trump's rhetoric? And what steps have you decided to take any specific steps afterwards that's above and beyond what you were doing already? We knew that there might be violence surrounding the election. We had actually been surprised and relieved at how little violence there had been prior to the 6th. And we'd been working with partners who monitor online forums and the likelihood of violence and been in in good touch with them. So we knew in advance, like everyone else did, that on the 6th, there may be attempts at violence at the Capitol. Those organizing activities by the groups that participated were happening on social media platforms. It wasn't hard to find out that that was happening. I think the thing that was surprising to us was how successful they were able to be. And that was largely about the response and the preparation by law enforcement. And so I think that was the part that was surprising to us. The fact that it happened wasn't surprising, that they were actually able to breach the Capitol and that law enforcement wasn't prepared for it, given that we knew days in advance this was going to happen, is what was surprising to us, but also to many other people. And I think, you know, we're a team that works on these issues, but we're also a team with a lot of people in D.C. And so, like, our first and primary concern was for the safety of our staff and for people that we knew. And then we started thinking about what to do. So 
Both Protect Democracy and the task force issued statements very quickly, kind of repudiating the violence. And then Protect Democracy in its initial statement called for the removal of President Trump as the inciter of violence. The task force had actually never previously talked about removal of the president. And it took, because it's a body of 50 people, they vote on decisions, it took a few hours for them to align on the fact that they did, in fact, want to call for removal. We staff the task force, we don't direct it. So there was a a deliberation there. And it happened very quickly. And I think... I think people knew that President Trump's rhetoric was going to lead to dissatisfaction among voters who would think that the election had been stolen and might undertake violent acts. I don't know how many of us actually imagined that he would call for it, that he would explicitly say, like, let's go to the Capitol. And I think that was jarring. And then his response as the Capitol was being stormed, Ben Sass and others said he was delighted, which I think... Maybe we shouldn't have been surprised, but I found it like horrifying that I think the human reaction to seeing violence and pain is distress. And I think the fact that that was not his reaction was terrifying and led to the calls for removal. And you know, in, in the days after the election and even before the six, and even the, the polling on the six, it was like, Initially, Republicans supported the actions of the protesters. In the days before the 6th, you saw vast majority of Republican voters thought the election had been stolen. And within a few days after the 6th, polling showed 80% of Republican voters thought that what happened on the Capitol was unacceptable. So I think that the reason you're starting to see a change in Republican elected leaders and you know, other institutions, business leaders and others is because the base is starting to change. I think that violence really sparked something in ordinary Americans were like, we might, yeah, I thought the election was stolen, but I didn't think someone should be killed for it. Like, you know, I think it was, it was like, this is not how we resolve problems and disputes. Well, so how do you think we should hold Trump accountable? You know, there's a lot of talk about that. What are you guys thinking? And is impeachment enough? And who else needs to be held accountable? Yeah, so we put out a report actually a couple months ago called Accountability to Prevent Reoccurrence. And so there are different purposes of accountability. And the way we've really thought about it is accountability not for retributive reasons, but to prevent things from happening again. And there are different tools for accountability. Obviously, prosecutions is one tool, and lots of people are focused on that. But I and others at Protect Democracy are really interested in the types of accountability that would help with institutional reform. And there are different ways to do that. Like we're very worried about what does this mean for the Justice Department or other places in government where many members of the civil service hollowed out, we know because we hired a lot of them. People left government, especially senior experienced people left government. And so the people who are left are the people who, who are senior but didn't feel like they needed to leave after this, after four years of this, which is a little bit scary to think about the type of person that might be, or much more junior people who may be very well intentioned, but what they've learned over the last four years about how government operates is not the type of leadership and what we want to see continued going forward. And so 
we've thought about sort of processes for institutional reform that are sort of like truth and reconciliation processes, not at a national level, but at an institutional level and at a, you know, maybe agency by agency, you allow the civil servants in that agency to come together without fear of prosecution to discuss, like, this is what I saw in the last four years. This is what I'm really worried about. Maybe you hear from communities that were directly impacted about like, this is what your child separation policy meant for me and my family. And with that, Together, you kind of come up with a set of reforms and proposals for a department or an agency. Other options we've talked about is public apologies can have like a very meaningful effect. There's someone on my team who worked in the Justice Department for the first two years of the Trump administration and wrote a piece about this in the Times, and she offered in her apology in that piece. And I think that is meaningful because it can't be the case that we don't interact with half the country. And so one of the things we have to think about is how do we create space and do we create space and for who to change their minds, to come back into the fold, to work with people again and what is required of them. And I don't know the answer to that question, but at the very least, I would imagine an apology should be required of them. And then the other thing to think about is vetting and illustration in government. So who's allowed to serve in government? You know, if you participated in enforcing the child separation policy or deciding on it, should you be allowed to still serve in government? What do we do about all the people who maybe left government or were fired because they opposed policies that were small anti-democratic? And I, I don't mean like child separation, which is a policy decision, but I mean power grabs and someone who refused to call Brad Raffensperger and bully him, right? Like someone like that. I do bring those people back into government. So I think, you know, one of the things we know from running organizations is personnel is policy. And so who is in government really will matter. And then I think also the culture of institutions really matters. Culture eats policy for breakfast. So whatever's written down in the manual isn't what's going to happen. And we really need to grapple with the culture of these institutions. And again, this is all about accountability for the purpose of trying to prevent this from happening again, because Donald Trump could come back stronger in 2024. You could see a Donald Trump 2.0 in certain Republicans who are trying to angle Holly Cruz, others who are trying to kind of angle to be the next version of Trump. And so it's not really about him as an individual, but about how do you, how do you shift things so that this can't happen again? Mm-hmm. So it's your concept of accountability is really about institutional change versus putting people in jail and entails some degree of compassion for people who may opening the door for some healing, it sounds like, versus, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying that everyone's saying now, don't prosecute Trump, you know, don't go after the Republicans because it's just going to divide us further. But I feel like what you guys are proposing is uniting, actually. I think for us, it's not really about a frame of uniting or dividing. It's really a frame of how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah, exactly. that, That is very much the question. And so I think there are places where prosecutions would be appropriate, probably. But I think we need to be thoughtful and careful about how do you do those prosecutions in such a way that it doesn't ignite further support for anti-democratic candidates in the future. And also, I think that prosecutions are not enough 
that like prosecutions won't get at the underlying problem, that you can prosecute a handful of high-level officials and there'll be another set of high-level officials who are equally happy to take their place. And you see this in flailing governments around the world that a member of the Republican Party or whatever the the party is that is anti-democratic in that country is trying to get the person they're primarying prosecuted by the opposition party so that they can take their job, right? So you can imagine Hawley trying to get Cruz prosecuted so he can run for president in 2024. Like that's not going to solve the problem because Hawley's going to be just as shitty as Cruz. And so like we need to be thinking about it, not just in terms of individuals, but in terms of systems and structures. How does the Republican primary process work? 16 candidates in the field got us Donald Trump. Thinking about how to strengthen parties, strengthen institutions, so that they can really serve as a check and also thinking about it's not one person who enacts a policy like child separation. It was hundreds and thousands of people. It was ICE officials. It was Border Patrol. It was people within DHS. All of those people are still going to be there after Donald Trump leaves office. And what do you do about them? And maybe the answer is you throw them all out of government, but maybe there's something else to do because maybe some of them feel terrible about what they did and they can help as the people who were closest to it and actually enacting it, they might have ideas and answers for how to make sure that the next time you have a Donald Trump type person in office, it's not possible for him to enact a policy like that. And so I think our model proposes and contemplates more nuance and more holistic top to bottom accountability and different levels of accountability based on people who are making decisions, people who are enacting decisions, and also trying to learn from people who are closest to that decision-making about how to prevent these things from happening again. So it's not just a cycle of, it's a different face, but the same problem. Right. So looking towards the future, I mean, after like one four alarm fire after the next for the last four years, hopefully we're all getting a little bit of a reprieve shortly. So what do you see as your mandate going forward? What are your priorities and, and what do you see as the challenges? For the last four years, the way we've defined our mission is to prevent the United States from declining into a more authoritarian form of government. Our mission has now expanded to include helping to perfect the democracy that we have, really strive towards making it a more perfect union. And so while in the past, our work has been focused on stopping the roof from caving in and starting to be prepared to reinforce guardrails, now we can actually try to get legislation passed to actually do some of that reinforcement. And we can start to think about the underlying root causes that I mentioned earlier. So we can start thinking about problems in our culture. We can start thinking about the health of our institutions and parties. We can think about accountability for the past, but also what are the changes we need in our government so that it is more responsive going forward, how to address people's very real concerns and lived experiences around whether that's economic inequality or fears about multiracial democracy. There really hasn't been a thriving multiracial democracy in the world. We don't have a good example for it that has really worked healthily and inclusively with the level of diversity we're talking about we're going to have in the next 20 years. And so we really need to, we're going to be building the plane as it flies and we need to, as a country. And so We want to think about what is our role to best position this country's health and democracy going forward. How do you all get your funding at Protect Democracy? And the corollary to that is how can our listeners help you in your mission? So Protect Democracy is funded both by foundations, individuals, 
and lots of small grassroots donors. We're really like thankful. We have donors, I think, in all 50 states, which is exciting. And now I think many countries around the world. And so we would always love the support of listeners. And also, we've also been increasingly thinking about and experimenting ways that we can work more closely, not just to be advising groups that work more with grassroots, but thinking about if and how we provide more ways for individuals to get involved because it's a question we've done a lot over the last four years. So I would just say people should sign up for our email list and keep their eyes open for that. Great. Thank you so much for joining me, Aditi. It's been really fascinating here about what you guys are doing. And I, for one, am so incredibly grateful for the work you guys have done for the last four years. And I'm so glad you're sticking around and going to keep it up. So thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.